One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, wherever you're listening from. This is Farfetched Fables. Welcome to show number 40. This week, we bring you a tale of conquest and slavery and the seemingly impossible pursuit of freedom. In a remote frozen outpost, one warrior slave struggles to find freedom under the shadow of dark mages. Is being a battle-hardened warrior enough to win liberation? From Tim LeBon, we bring you Forever. Tim is a New York Times best-selling horror and fantasy writer from South Wales. He's had over 30 novels published to date, as well as dozens of novellas and hundreds of short stories. His most recent releases include the apocalyptic Coldbrook, a publisher weekly book of the year, Alien, Out of the Shadows, Into the Void, Dawn of the Jedi, and the Toxic City trilogy from Pyre in the USA. Future novels include The Silence, The Relics trilogy, also from Titan, and the thriller The Hunt. He has won four British Fantasy Awards, a Bram Stoker Award, and a Scribe Award, and has been a finalist for World Fantasy, International Horror Guild, and Shirley Jackson Awards. A movie of his story, Pay the Ghost, starring Nicolas Cage, has just finished shooting in Toronto. With Christopher Golden, he wrote the screenplay for their novel, The Secret Journey of Jack London, for 20th Century Fox. His spooky animated film, My Haunted House, is in development, along with several other movie projects. Find out more about Tim at his website, www.timlabon.net. We'll have links in the show notes. Forever is read for us by Anthony Babington. Anthony is a voice in the Internet's head. He looks almost, but not quite, exactly how you'd expect him to. He currently resides in Houston, Texas, but hastens to add that it was not his idea. He can be found on Google+. And so, here is Anthony Babington reading Forever by Tim Lebon. On Danaman, the cold bit hard. Ice informed thought. Frost froze dreams of freedom, and duty and supplication were the way. On Danaman, there was preparation for a war long in coming, with no sign of its beginning yet in sight. On Danaman, island of the damned, natural home only to glaciers and snow demons and the ice people. Life was hard, but death was harder. 
The mages needed every man and woman for their army. Death was unpardonable. From a distance, the island seemed huge and barren, a desert of ice and snow with a few silent volcanoes protruding like the fingertips of buried giants. It stretched east to west farther than the curves of the world, and its widest point north to south would take twenty days to traverse. Occasionally, a localized melt would occur when the island's only active volcano erupted, and the resultant floods would rearrange its geography for generations to come. Closer in there were settlements, scattered across the low-lying plains at the foot of the volcanoes, staggered along the seashore, a few further inland. Some were long deserted, others appeared to be thriving. Smoke rose high from countless fires, boats bobbed between ice floating at the coast, and occasionally a hawk would drift down out of the constant cloud cover, disgorge its passenger, and then rise up again to its customary heights. There were even a few farms where snow and ice had been painstakingly removed, and the ground given over to sparse greenery. Closer still, one settlement clung to a slip of rock that protruded half a mile out to sea, curving around and forming a natural breakwater and harbor. It was here at Newland that the mages and the remains of their army had landed over a century before, driven out of Norila far to the south and sent into exile. Fitting, then, that their new Crote army called this place their home. Boats and ships of all sizes rested here, most of them small fishing sloops, a couple of transports for carrying materials and people around Danaman, and two larger vessels brimming with tools of war. The harbor was a busy place. It stank of freshly landed fish, much of it rank and inedible, gone to rot, and echoed to the sound of metal on metal from glowing metalsmiths at its very tip. One of the warships was moored at the breakwater, and once each day a giant trolley was pushed back and forth, the ship weighed down with more weapons. At the landward end of the breakwater, on a slope where Newland spread and cast its roots into Danaman proper, a collection of timber and ice buildings was laid out in a regular, monotonous design. Pennants floated above some buildings, others were bare. Some were well-maintained, others less so, given over more to evidence of violent times than careful tending. Hundreds of men and women walked in and out of the barrack complex, sometimes in groups or pairs, more often alone. They wore furs and leathers, wrapped against the cold, and they all carried weapons of some kind attached to their belts or strung across their backs. But there was no fight in the air today. Danaman was their island, and theirs alone. The fight they existed for would come later. In one of the rows of barracks there was a tent made of whalebone and cured horse skin, and in that tent sat a man called Knox. He was a big man and, like most of the Croat warriors he shared the encampment with, his clothing bristled with weaponry. Knives, stars, maces, slide shocks, and throwing spikes. His hair was long and braided, more to keep it out of his eyes than for decoration. His skin was dark as leather, weathered by his four decades living on Danaman. And his eyes were as cool blue as the oldest glacier. He sat alone. Those sharing his quarters had gone for food. Had anyone entered, they would have instantly seen that something was wrong. Knox was slowly deliberately slicing grooves into his arm, letting the blood well and flow from each cut before raising the knife to his face, scraping away a line of rough stubble and running the knife through each wound again. He was breathing hard and fast, swaying on the end of his cot, shaking his head slowly as if to spread and dilute the pain. The stubble dug into the raw flesh of his wounds, stung him there, promising to keep them open and bleeding. When his wounds were noticed, he would be sent to the hospital barge moored at the end of the breakwater. And from there, 
escape from Danaman, and the mages was so much closer. How the hell did you do that? Serval said. She was staring at Nox's arm with frank fascination. She had always been one for blood. This is it, thought Nox. This is the lie that changes me forever. Fox lion cub, he said. I went down to the beach looking for crabs, and it was hiding behind a float of ice. A cub did that? Serval leaned in closer, removing her glove and reaching out. Knox pulled away, wincing as his arm flexed and the wound gaped. More blood ran. Serval licked her lips. You'll have none of me, Knox said. He was sitting on his cot, furs splashed with blood, waiting for the words that may set him free. He thought it unlikely that they would come from Serval. She had been here much longer than him, and was of the western tribes. Wild and hard, even for a croat. But the others would be back soon. He had to be ready. Did you kill it? No. It swam away. Dived as soon as it took a swipe at me. Serval glared at him. A cub better do? Knox shrugged. I wasn't there looking for trouble. I was looking for crabs. I wanted something different from that shit they serve in the mess. We eat to live, not for pleasure, she said, looking at his bloodied arm once again. You westerns are so backward, he said, and Serval threw back her head and laughed. Knox glanced at her belt in the second she looked away, marking her weapons. Just in case. She was part of his troop, but they had never really been friends. Jax and Morton came into the tent, belching and laughing, and a gust of cold air and snow followed them in. Knox had a fight with a fox-lion cub and lost, Serval said. Morton sat on his bunk, unconcerned. Serval went to him. They were together sometimes, those two, and Knox only hoped that they did not start right now. That looks painful, Jack said. He stood over Knox and stared down at the wounds. It'll scar well, better than mine. He displayed a fleshy knot on his own arm. You're welcome to it, Knox said. And yes, it does hurt. You should get to the hospital, Barge, Jack said. Fox lions carry contagion. And no offense, Knox, but I don't want to catch anything you may have. There they are, Knox thought. The words that set me free. You think so? It's not that bad. The bleeding's almost stopped, and how long ago did it happen? Just after you went to eat? It should have stopped by now, Jack said. Croats don't bleed for long. You know that. Something's keeping your blood thin and your wound open. And I say again, I don't want to catch it. He stepped back giving Knox room to stand. Serval and Morton were looking over now, sensing the threat of violence in Jax's voice. A warm bed and the attention of those medics, Morton said. Don't pretend you don't want to go. Knox did not risk a response. Give myself away, he thought. They'll know I intend never to see them again. Serval and Morton I'll not be sorry to leave. But Jax has been something of a friend. So he shrugged his weapon belt over one shoulder, held his bleeding arm beneath his outer jacket, and exited into the open air. Knox took in a deep breath and let it out. Somewhere in that stew of stenches, freedom. Knox had been caught by the crude armies when he was a child. He knew nothing but his current existence. 
even though there were sometimes dreams that he could never truly know or understand. Then he saw the faces of kindly people, green fields, a village working for survival, not war. He had no idea what had happened to that place, nor those people, and mostly he pretended not to care. He was as much a Croat warrior now as those born here, and he lived, as did every Croat, to serve the mages. His upbringing and training had made sure of that. Newland, the only named settlement on Danaman, was where the mages had landed after being driven out of their rightful home on Norila. So it was told, so it was true. They had landed here, nursing wounds driven into their flesh by the arrogant Norilan armies, and they and their surviving Croat warriors had made the place their home. The harbor had welcomed them in with its long, curved breakwater, protecting them against the storms that had raged for all their weeks at sea, allowing them a gentle landing on this place of snow and ice. And now, though the mages were rarely seen away from their volcano lair miles inland, this harbor was still a special place. Knox had lived here all his life, venturing away only to train on the mountain slopes inland, or to join a raiding party to the islands far to the east and west of Danaman. He ate here, trained for the promised war to come, slept, screwed, drank, made friends, and lost them. He returned here to nurse occasional wounds, suffered on raids. He relaxed here on those days given over to leisure, hunting sea-snakes with his friends, wrestling and sparring on the harbor front. He called it home, and yet there were those dreams. Fields of green, not white. Striving for survival and peace, not war. And Knox had begun to wonder more and more just where those dreams could lead. He walked out of the barracks and headed down the gentle slope into Newland. From here he could see the whole expanse of the natural harbor, curved out into the sea like the arm of Danaman itself. Boats were docked all along the breakwater, but it was the two warships that stood out. Five times larger than any other vessel, they sported huge masts and furled sails, ready for sailing at a moment's notice. Snow and ice made surreal sculptures of their rigging. From this distance, Knox could barely make out individual people walking along the harbor, but there was a sense of continuous movement about the port which made him yearn, briefly, for the relative calm of the barracks. But his arm throbbed, and the stubble in the wounds kept them open and leaking. He withdrew it from the cover of his jacket and was surprised at the amount of blood still running from the cuts. How ironic it would be to die from blood loss, now that he had finally found the nerve to attempt escape. After all these years, all those vague notions of fleeing, no one would know. He would slump down here in the snow and, dreaming of green fields, his life would filter away into the ice of ages. They would find his corpse frozen into the hillside, thaw him, and feed him to the trained hawks that came down on occasion from above the clouds. Killed by a fox-lion cub, they would say, probably mocking him. And in weeks, or days, he would not even be a memory. Knox shook his head and bit his lip, the pain stinging him into action. He hurried on toward the harbor. He could make out the hospital barge now, right at the end of the breakwater, past the weapons workshops. And beyond that, there was open sea, and freedom. When he was seventeen, Knox already knew the meaning of faith. The subjects of his faith were the mages, sinister, elusive Sahivas, beautiful, terrible angel. And his belief was strong and profound. 
He had faith in the fact that he was there to serve them, and nothing else. Those brief memories of childhood were dream fragments frozen by the snows and ice of Danaman. Their meaning lost, any emotion conjured by them scorched away by the frost. The mages were his masters, and everything he was, everything he would be, was because of them. He was a soldier, and one day they would call on his services to take revenge on the people far to the south that had driven them away. They owned his mind, and most of the time, his heart. Most of the time. Because even pure faith is fickle. And one evening, lying in a sweaty tangle with a female croat warrior, sated, sharing body warmth against the freezing air outside, he uttered a brief, illicit sentence. One day, maybe we'll get out of here. The croat mumbled something and shifted, her hands searching for the hottest part of him, and within minutes Knox had forgotten the thought that had conjured those words. But above them, in shadows cast between the ceiling and wall of the tent, something blinked out of existence. It was a nothing, not even a blackness, a shade, a ghost of a soul yet to be born. It too served the mages, though it had no mind to doubt, nor a heart to debate. It skimmed away beneath the surface of reality, back to its masters. And though the words meant nothing to the shade, the mages heard and stored them for the future. Nursing his bleeding arm, Knox entered the outskirts of the harbor side. The iced road had been powdered with volcanic ash to make the going easier. Snow had been cleared from the rooftops, icicles hacked away from windows, and animal hides hung heavy across doorways. All the timber used in construction was brought in from other places, and along with the materials came slaves to do the building. There were dozens of them in the streets. Knox paid them as much attention as he did snow goats and seagulls. They were below his contempt. Human, yes, but beyond that there was little to compare the slaves to the croat masters they served. The mages used some arcane chemicala to drive down any rebellion in the imported slaves, and they strolled through the streets like dim-witted goats heavily muscled and vacant. Knox met their gazes occasionally, and saw no intelligence there. Instinct kept them out of the croat's path, and interaction was unheard of. He stepped aside to let some burden beasts pass, ex-slaves that had been transformed even further by the mage's chemicala. It had taken time and interbreeding, but over two or three generations the mages had created large, strong beasts out of previously man-sized, weak slaves. These things had lost their sexuality, their humanity, and any remnants of dignity or pride that often still existed deep in a slave's mind. Their skins were sometimes stretched and split by accelerated growth, and the dusted roads showed trails of dried blood where burden beasts had passed. Knox watched these four snort and strain as they hauled a sled of food out of the harbor side and up towards the barracks on the hill. A croat rode the sled sitting casually amongst the crates, smoking and staring absently over the beast's heads. He glanced down as the sled passed by, looked at Knox's bloodied arm, and away again. None of his business, his attitude said, and Knox could only agree. He walked further into Newland, and the closer he came to the harbor, the busier it became. The whole point of the croat's existence was to go to war, the fabled great return of which the mages spoke whenever they emerged from their solitude a return to Norila and vengeance upon the peoples that had made them outcasts before magic had withdrawn itself from humanity. Yet though the great return was their sole reason for being, generations of croats had been waiting for a long time. 
Over a century since the mages had landed on Danaman. So it was told, so it was true. Still the war seemed no closer, the final order to prepare and launch as distant as ever. In darkened taverns in the dead of night, some whispered that it was because the mages had lost magic. They had their chemicala, they had their rage, but without magic they were powerless against the land that had driven them out. Others said it was because the mages were too old. Most that spoke bad of them rarely did so more than once. Punishment was silent and swift. Knox felt suddenly dizzy, and he had to lean against a wall to gather his strength. He glanced inside his jacket and saw the weak sun reflecting from fresh blood. Maybe I've killed myself, he thought, and smiled grimly. Maybe that is an escape of sorts. At the age of twenty, Knox went on his first raid. He and his troop of thirty croats took a coastal sloop and traveled east for three days, dodging icebergs, whirlpools, and giant cold whales until they reached the far end of the Isle of Danaman. Here they came ashore overnight, before heading out across the sea. The small boat was not built for the swells and storms of the open ocean, and on more than one occasion Knox was certain they would capsize. He knew very well that to be tipped into these waters meant certain death either from the intense cold or the things that lived beneath the waves. They saw them sometimes, white movement in the depths, like wraiths floating by at twilight. And though the croats were not cowards, they could feel fear. Fear keeps you alive, the female mage Angel once said at a gathering. And it was fear that saved Knox and his fellow croats that day. Close to being swamped, they took up oars, rowing all day and night and into the next day until they reached their destination. Then, after days traveling without sleep, freezing, hungry, and weak, the Croats had to fight. The tribe they went against were not warriors. Perhaps decades before they had held some semblance of organization and civilization. But after a century and during regular Croat raids, their society had regressed to something base and pitiful. Some had fled, but most stayed because their island was all they knew, and though they were all but resigned to the regular pillage, some still fought. They used rocks and sharpened whalebone, fiery blubber bombs and fists, and to begin with the Croats toyed with them, giving the islanders a brief sense that victory was possible. After an afternoon of running, hiding, and fighting, however, the mages' warriors' exhaustion took over. They stormed the islanders' stronghold, slaughtered anyone who offered resistance, and took what they had come all this way to steal. They returned to Danaman with their hold filled with food, spices, and seedlings for the farms on Danaman's volcano's flanks. Also in the hold were several men and women from the island, and each croat, man and woman alike, took turns pleasuring themselves. There has to be more than this, Knox whispered to himself that night. It was not guilt or shame, but a hollowness that seemed to fill him as he lay on the deck staring up at a sky so filled with stars that it seemed to be snowing. It was not a sensation he was familiar with, and he put it down to post-fight fatigue. But he felt empty, wanting. And perhaps then, more than any time before, he perceived a fraction of the potential his life could have borne. Has to be. As he slept, he dreamed of green fields. And a croat that had been lying near him remembered his words sensed the rebellious potential, and pledged to confer them to his superior. In Danaman, anything out of the ordinary had a way of making itself known to the mages. 
Knox, you snow-goat's cock! Where are you off to in such a hurry? Am I missing a fight? No, sir, Knox said. Of all the luck. The woman standing before him was at least two hands taller than Knox. Wider, heavier, older, and scarred from countless fights and battles. A croat took pride in his or her scars, displaying them whenever possible, and despite the cold, this lieutenant wore only bands of hide around her chest and hips. Her bare stomach was a network of livid red disfigurements, and her shoulders, though broad, had great chunks of flesh missing, as if burned away by a white-hot iron. Of all the bloody luck! Lieutenant Lenora was something of a legend amongst the croats of Newland. What have you done there? Cut yourself shaving? She nodded at the bloody patch on Knox's jacket, her bald head shimmering with frost. Fox lion, sir, Knox said, changing his story slightly. He had to impress her now, pass her by, go on his way. If she thought he'd come out worse in a fight with a fox lion cub, she was likely to take a knife to him herself. And that's all you have? I'm impressed, Knox. I'll bet you cut the thing's head off as a trophy, eh? Absolutely, sir. It's back at the barracks. Serval's boiling it up for me even now. I'm off to the hospital barge to make sure I didn't catch anything from the shitting thing, and it's fox lion stew all around. Ha! Lieutenant Lenora clapped him on his bad arm and laughed at the sky. They said she had the ear of the mages. Some even said she was one of the croats that had survived the route from Narila. Immortal now. The ultimate killer. So let me smell your sword. My sword? The blood of victory smells sweet, Knox, and it's months since I've bloodied mine in battle. A fox lion's a worthy opponent, that's for sure. Even though you shouldn't have been down at the beach on your own, eh? Huh? She leaned in close and smiled. I... I was looking for... Something better to eat. Yes, I know, Knox. Can't blame you. The shit they serve you, Croats, is enough to drive anyone to fend for themselves. I'm being tested here, Knox thought. She's probing. She smells something wrong. Maybe it's my eyes, my guilty eyes. The way she referred to Croats as if she were not one disturbed him greatly. Far from sounding disrespectful to the mages, it showed that she thought herself above a mere Croat a true warrior of the mages, with countless scars to prove it. He had heard that her shoulder wounds were caused by a hawk gone berserk. It had grabbed her and flown so high with her in its claws that when she finally burst its stomach with her sword it took her a whole afternoon to fall. Foolish legends, but her eyes held a cool, dark humor, as if challenging him to doubt. Well, you don't have to agree with me, Knox, even though I know you do. So, your sword... I trust you didn't polish it clean, what with your arm half off. Polish? No. N no. He felt suddenly faint. His arm began to burn where the blood still pumped through it, and Lieutenant Lenora grew higher, wider as he sank to his knees on the ice road. When Knox came to, he knew that he was caught. Lieutenant Lenora had known from the second she saw him that he had escape on his mind. It was obvious from the way he walked, the look in his eyes, the tint of his skin, and now he was being held somewhere awaiting punishment. He had never, ever heard of a croat trying to escape Danaman. He had never heard of anyone even entertaining the thought. It was bred out of them, and though he knew he was abnormal even considering fleeing, he did not waste time questioning why. Perhaps it was the grass-green dreams. But really, he did not care. Actions had meaning. Musing upon such mysteries did not. 
He had sometimes wondered whether there was a place on Danaman where attempted escapees were held. Now he opened his eyes, not knowing what to expect. You have lost a lot of blood, Lieutenant Lenora said. She was sitting on a bench before him, holding him upright. The muscles in her arms were knotted and hard. Even if he wanted to fall away, she would not let him. I'm flying, he muttered, and for a brief instant he thought he'd said, I'm fleeing. Nasty bastards, fox lions. They carry something in their spit that stops blood clotting, helps them drink from their prey easier. You say you were scratched, not bitten? Knox only nodded. To elaborate would be to open up his story to scrutiny, and he was not level-headed enough for that. Lenora frowned. Hmm. Well, there's something in there keeping you flowing like a hold goat. She twisted Knox's arm up out of his lap and licked across his wounds, slowly, her tongue fat and gray. She cleared a path through his blood, glanced up at him, smiling grotesquely. Tasty, she said. Knox looked away, unnerved. He had often seen Croats blooding themselves after a battle, had done so himself. But he had only ever heard of cannibalism second-hand. The immortal ones do it, Serval had told him one drunken evening. Those that came back from Norila with the mages, they never die. So it doesn't matter if they're eating infected flesh, drinking bad blood. Imagine being like that. Strange, Lenora said. She turned Nox's arm this way and that, examining the wounds. They began to seep, and Knox was certain she was going to lick them again, and he was not sure he could stand it, that sandpaper tongue scraping across the pouting lips of his gashed arm. What? he said, trying to draw her attention. What's strange? Something's in there, she said, running her tongue around her mouth. Gritty. We'd best get you where you were going. What do you say? Knox nodded and his gratitude and relief were not feigned. Lieutenant Lenora, allegedly immortal and over a hundred years old already, swung his right arm around her shoulders and held him upright. His feet could only just touch the floor, such was her height. But to begin with, it seemed not to matter. She walked quickly toward the harbor, a path clearing naturally before her, and for a few seconds Knox began to believe his own lie. A few croats glanced at them, and he saw admiration in their expressions. Wounded in battle, he thought, and he wanted to tell them about the fox lion he had fought and defeated. But, of course, there had been no fox lion. There had been only his knife. And if Lenora asked again to smell the vanquished beast's blood on his sword, then his ruse was over. He looked down at his feet trailing across the dirty ice. Did I really believe I could get away? Yes, he had. And he may yet. They reached the harbor, and Knox suggested that he walk himself to the hospital barge. It's not fit for a warrior to be carried into hospital, he said. Not unless he's missing legs and arms. Then, maybe, there's no shame in having a lift. Lenora smiled and set him down, and Knox knew that he had impressed her. That was good. Perhaps it would ensure that she would ask no more about his fox-lion-bloodied sword. You're a brave croat she said. I'm surprised you even knew me, sir. Lenora raised her eyebrows. I'm a lieutenant. 
You think it's my duty to not know those under my command? Of course not, sir. It's just that you've never called me by name before. I never had cause to. You never impressed me before. She stared frankly at him, her eyes intelligent and filled with the cool threat of imminent violence. Knox smiled weakly, and his genuine pain and faintness helped him on his way. I hope this will not be the last time, he said. Lenora laughed and clapped him on the shoulder, sending him staggering sideways into a mound of fishing baskets piled on the breakwater. She stepped after him and held him steady, still laughing. I'm sure it won't, she said. When the time comes and we sail to Norila, I expect you to be at the head of your troop. There'll be plenty of blood to spill there, plenty of Norilan women to be stung by your sword. The wait for revenge is cold, but its fulfillment is hot as blood. Knox forced himself to smile. Maybe I'll even be living in Norila then, he thought. How ironic would that be? And when will that be? he said. Asking questions like this was usually frowned upon, but he seemed to have gained Lenora's respect. And, truth be told, the idea that he may well be away from this place and on his way to freedom by nightfall made him more daring. Lenora raised her eyebrows. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Keen, are we? Of course, Knox said, suddenly afraid that he had gone too far. Good. That's good, Crote. Because whenever the mages call on us, we need to be ready to make them proud. She turned to walk away. 
and through his queasiness Knox felt a warming sense of relief. And then she turned back to him. Magic, she said. That's what they await. The reemergence of magic. When the time comes, they'll want it, and isn't that right? Isn't it proper that those who used magic to its full extent before should have it for themselves? Of course, Knox said. Yes. Lenora glanced around at the bustling harbor front, leaned in close, whispered in his ear. He smelled her breath, cool, stale, like a ruptured air pocket in a shifting glacier, and he could not help but draw back. They still have it, you know, she said. Not true magic, but means, methods, knowledge. They know more than we can imagine. Now, here... They probably even know that we're together. They can see us. They'll smell us. And when I say this to you, when I tell you that the mages are your gods, and any god you betray will give you an eternity of pain, then they hear what I say. You hear, mistress? You hear, master? Lenora stared into Knox's eyes as if looking way deeper than her own reflection. Oh, yes, she whispered. They hear. And then she turned and walked away. Knox watched her go. Faint from loss of blood, sick with terror, he waited until she was out of sight on the harbor side. Then he turned and started to make his way to the hospital barge. It was almost half a mile away along the breakwater. Every step of that journey, he imagined the mages watching. When he was twenty-eight, Knox fell in love. She was another croat a warrior from a troop stationed at a remote village way along the coast. When they visited Newland to attend a training exercise run by the mages themselves, Lucy caught Knox's eye. Hours after first introducing himself, he was screwing her behind the storage hut on the harbor front, and hours after that he knew that this was something different. She did not seem to realize, but his devoted attention was for more than the physical. His comments to her over the next few days held far more substance than simple sex talk. They screwed every night and fought every day, but when they returned to their barracks, bloodied, exhausted, confident as ever in their abilities to fight for the mages, Knox would always fall in step with Lucy. She would smile at him hungrily, and he would smile back, silent, unable to speak, painfully aware of her presence, her warmth, her smell. Her talk was of the day they had spent slaughtering slaves brought in from the north and given ice swords to spar with. His own words sang her praise. Lucy heard nothing of it, or if she did, she smothered it with her sexual abandon. Knox could not tell her what he felt. Love encouraged weakness and gave its victims over to mindlessness. Though not punishable, those who claimed love were often sent away to live in the northern mountains for a year or more. If they returned, they invariably found their way back to normality. If not, then their love was frozen into infinity along with their weak flesh. One night... She lay sleeping after sex. Knox laid his head beside Lucy's and whispered into her ear. It can't always be like this, he said. We can escape, you and I, or go away. There must be somewhere I can tell you the truth. She stirred and uttered a dreaming growl, and Knox turned onto his back and sought sleep. Behind him, beneath the skins insulating them from the icy ground, a worm the size of a thumb squirmed its way northward. It had listened. 
It had heard. It had not understood, but knowledge was not its purpose. Only delivery of what it had heard to the mages. The tone of voice it had been programmed to find had been there. The intent it was made to discover was evident in the man's voice, his words, the way he breathed and sweated and finally slept. The worm's journey to the mage's redoubt took almost a year. That did not matter. A year was nothing. And once its message was delivered, its reward was Angel's teeth tearing it in half for the cool juice of its insides. The hospital barge was far from refined. It was a large coastal sloop, stripped bare of its superstructure and covered by a simple timber and animal skin roof. It had glassless windows, a few doors, a couple of chimneys smoking lazily in the still afternoon air. Inside there was no pretension to comfort. Those that came here always left very soon after, either back on their feet again, or dragged to the end of the breakwater and given to the carrion creatures that lived in the cold sea. There was never a long stay. Once wounded or taken ill, patients would either recover quickly to fight again, or they were no longer of use. There was as much treatment by the sword as by medicine. Knox stepped onto the barge. He paused for a second, glancing down at his bleeding arm, felt the slight shifting of the boat beneath his feet. And here he was, one step closer to freedom. Several medics glanced up as he went inside, but none of them rose to aid him. He was walking, his wound looked minor, and the pride of a warrior was precious. He found himself a bed, only a few were occupied, and sat down heavily. Closing his eyes, he could not decide whether his queasiness was due to the boat's movements or his own blood loss. "'Cut yourself shaving?' a medic asked. Knox glanced up at her and smiled. Argument with a fox-lion. The woman raised her eyebrows, mildly impressed, and held his arm. How long ago? This morning. Should have stopped bleeding by now. You look pale. I'll have to flush the fox-lion's poison from the wounds. She paused and looked Knox in the eye. It'll hurt. I didn't expect anything less. As the medic went to gather some equipment, Knox looked around at the few other patients. Most of them sat on their beds or lay propped up, conscious and alert, eager to leave as soon as possible. A few were prone, moaning softly in whatever sleep had taken them. One of them was dead. Blood pooled under their bed, and Knox could see a chipped sword glistening nearby. One more free meal for the sea creatures. When the medic returned, Knox felt a sudden stab of fear and doubt. He began to wonder whether his plan had held any sanity after all, or whether the cold had finally driven him mad. "'Lay down,' she said. Knox did not move. "'Are you sure?' She smiled, but it held little humor. "'Scared, Crote?' Knox shook his head, lay down, and held out his arm. The medic was right. It hurt. Later, at night, in the quiet, Knox kept himself awake. The medic had given him a chemicala powder to help him sleep and regain his strength, but he had retained it beneath his tongue and spat it out when she left. Dregs of it had found its way into his system. Shadows of sleep crowded in. But every few minutes he tensed his dressed arm, and the pain brought him back. His wounds were flushed and had stopped bleeding, but the process had hurt more than putting them there in the first place. 
The hospital barge was never completely quiet. There were a few snores from his fellow patients, and one of them moaned in her sleep, haunted by sleep demons. Knox was glad of this. He used a heavy snore as cover for sitting up. When a man cried out in his sleep, Knox stood from his cot. When the nightmaring women muttered some ancient curse at whatever troubled her, he paced quickly to the windows and moved a curtain aside. The harbor was much quieter than during the day, but there was still movement here and there, torches flaring along the breakwater, shadows slipping through shadows. He had always known there would be people around, but his plan was brazen enough to have a chance. Or so he thought. If he was wrong, then he would be dead by dawn, floating in the icy seas, fodder for the carrion creatures cruising its depths. "'Never seen the mages!' someone cried out, and Knox froze. Moonlight cast his shadow back into the barge. Anyone opening their eyes would see him silhouetted against the starlight. But there were no more words. It had sounded like the woman. Perhaps it was the mages that haunted her sleep. Knox lifted himself slowly onto the window sill and stepped outside. The edge of the barge was just wide enough to walk around, but any missed footing would send him into the water. That would be the end of him. Night was a time for fox-lions. How ironic it would be to fall victim to one now. He worked his way to the end of the barge and back up onto the breakwater. At its very tip were moored some old fishing sloops. They had been there for years, and their ragged sails and abandoned appearance had planted the seed of his plan. He would steal one, sail it away from Newland and Danaman, never trying to hide. If anyone glanced out at the moonlit scene, they would see a sailing boat heading confidently out to sea. They would assume that there was nothing wrong and go back to sleep. Or they would raise the alarm and follow his stolen boat with a hail of arrows and bolts. The more he thought about his plan, the more Knox realized how crazy he was. But in a way that gave him comfort, because it was that very craziness that would offer his greatest chance of success. No one had ever heard of a crow escaping the mage's island. No one had ever heard of anyone even trying. And the simple reason was that it was suicide. Even if they could escape, to be truly free of the mage's influence, they would have to sail a thousand miles south to Nerila. Standing at the end of the breakwater, Knox looked out at the dark sea that would be his home for the next few weeks. He planned to fish for food and gather rainwater to drink. A thousand miles. No, he thought. I can do it. It will work. It's so simple and foolish and impossible, it has to work. He climbed down a rusted ladder onto the deck of one of the boats, untied its mooring ropes, used a paddle to shove it away from the breakwater, hoisted the sail, held the tiller, and smiled as a breath of wind seemed to rise from nowhere, helping him on his way to freedom. The breath of fate. And he was right. Fate breathed down his neck that night. When he was thirty-five, Knox took part in a raid on a settlement to the north. The Croats knew of the ice people, bands of rovers that wandered across the snowfields, killed birds for food, eking out a sparse existence. They were undeveloped, wild people, all but cultureless, spending every minute of their waking time embroiled in a battle of survival against the elements. The one talent they did possess was speed. It could have been due to their long legs, grown strong and thin over time to enable them to step through deep snow. 
or maybe it was a gift born of the need to flee the many predators that hunted them for food. Whatever the cause, it provided for excellent target practice for Crote crossbows. The fight was ferocious. The surface of the glacier was left stained red with the blood of the ice people, redder than any blood the Crotes had ever seen, and the few that escaped became an enjoyable distraction for the next couple of hours. Knox and his companions followed the escapees through the snow, using refined skills of tracking and stalking that had been honed through many other such hunts. The ice people knew their territory well. They were adept at hiding. They could blend in with the snowscape, so pale was their skin. But they were no match for the Croats, and in truth it was simply sport. Knox ran down one ice woman, finally bringing her legs from under her with a bolt to the back of the knee. He stood over her, panting, watching her blood seep into the snow and turn it a deep red. She stared up at him, rapid breaths condensing in the air and floating across the glacier like frozen screams. She spoke, but he did not know her language. He decided to slit her stomach open and let her insides out. A slow, cruel way to kill her. But she had led him on a long chase, and now he was sore and tired, and his blood was up. For a second, as he bent down, the idea flashed across his mind that this was wrong. He glanced at the woman's face and was amazed at the change there. She had gone from terrified to enraged, fearful to ferocious. Shock made him plunge his sword into her chest. She gasped, arched her back, and he pushed harder, twisting the handle and feeling ribs snap under the pressure. She hissed blood. He did not know the words, but their meaning was clear. He could see the hate in her eyes. Knox withdrew the sword and brought it down onto her neck, severing her head. Then he stood and walked away. The woman died. Her wraith rose up, colder than the freezing waste that had been her home. And using a talent that the Croats would never know, she looked into her killer's mind and saw his greatest, most secret wish. And she knew how vengeance could be hers. Leaving the bloody wreck of her body behind, the Ice Woman's wraith drifted south with a message for the mages. They let him think he had escaped. He spent that whole night sat at the tiller, sailing hard, aware of every boat length he put between himself and Danaman. His whole life was falling behind, and he felt nothing for it. No loss, no sadness, no sense of the version of himself that he was leaving. Ahead, in the dark, the promise of something new loomed like the sun waiting to rise. The weight of all his bad deeds sailed with him, but they were lighter by the second. It was as if putting distance between himself and the mages was also diluting the evils he had performed at their behest. And then, as the sun peered over the horizon, he heard the screech of something diving down from above. Even before Knox had turned to look, the voice came down to slaughter all his hopes and dreams. "'Going somewhere!' Lenora shouted. He thought to reach for his sword, but how could he fight this flying thing? The hawk was huge, tentacles trailing as it plummeted, wicked curved beak catching the first rays of sunlight. It would crush him. The creature pulled up short and hovered above his head. The stink of its exhaust thrust down at him, billowing the boat's sails and forcing him to his knees, retching. When he looked up again, he saw who else rode the beast's back. And hope left him forever, purged by the sight of the mage. "'Mistress Angel wants your help!' Lenora shouted down. 
Knox could only stare, hands limp by his side, unable to tear his gaze away from this sorceress. Though bereft of magic for a century, she still exuded malevolence, a sense of dread like sweat seeping from her pores. She was beautiful, but awful to behold. She looked down on him without expression. Lifeless. And he wished for all the world that she would speak, because her silence was most terrifying of all. "'Will you help?' Lenora said. "'You're toying,' Knox said. "'Just kill me and get it over with.' "'Kill you?' Lenora said. "'Of course not, Knox. What a waste!' Knox could not begin to imagine the punishment he would receive. He reached quickly for his sword. He would drag the keen blade across his own throat and gasp one last bloody laugh at this mage. Perhaps a century ago she would have been able to torture his departed soul. But now, in a magicless world, dead was dead. Goodbye, he thought. The crossbow bolt passed clean through his palm. He dropped the sword and it fell into the ocean with hardly a splash. No, said Angel, her voice like a rumble in the ocean depths. Lenora whistled and the hawk came down, its claws outstretched, and grabbed Knox from the boat. Its talons passed through his thigh and shoulder and he screamed, the mage's laughter a ghastly accompaniment. Mistress Angel demands your help, Lenora shouted. The hawk rose swiftly and Knox saw his own blood spattering the deck of the boat. Part of him may find freedom, at least. The hawk rose high and flew fast, and Knox's petty attempt to flee was belittled by the short time it took them to reach Newland. He hung from the creature's talons, trying not to scream, weathering the pain, certain that there would be far worse to come. Pain is imaginary, he had been told. Control it as you control your imagination. But the feel of the thick talons scraping against his bones was real enough and each change in direction brought a screech from his throat. Above him, out of sight on the hawk's back, Angel's lieutenant laughed every time. "'Where are we going?' Knox asked. There was no answer, and he was not surprised. The mage would not deign to talk to him unless she so desired, and when she did, it would doubtless be to tell him of some awful fate. From high up, Knox saw that Newland was deserted. The usually bustling harbor had been left to the bobbing boats and scavenging seabirds, and the only movement in the barracks fields was the flutter of flags. Where's everyone gone? he thought. And why? As if passing from above sea to land was a signal, one of the hawk's huge tentacles suddenly whipped around his waist. Its claws uncurled and Knox screamed as he was tugged from them. He struggled and tried to fall, but the tentacle held him tight crushing his stomach and lifting him up, depositing him in the saddle on its back. The hawk let go, but Knox could not move. Before him, Lenora held the reins and guided the creature inland, and behind him, her breath hot on his neck, her presence like a hole that could swallow him up. Angel. I have known for years that you would flee, Angel whispered. Her voice was a shard of ice penetrating his skull. My brother and I have been watching, waiting. We decided a long time ago that we'd make an example of you. Why? Knox said, 
having to shout into the air disturbed by the hawk's flight. Angel's voice did not sound raised at all, and yet he heard her words, clear and heavy. "'Because we wished it,' Angel said. She rested her hand on his wounded shoulder and squeezed gently. "'You have no friends, Knox. They've betrayed you. You have no comrades or lovers on your side. No one. You're quite unique.' The others that try to escape we simply kill, cut up, eat. But time is moving on. Things change. I want everyone to see what happens to you. Knox pressed his hands flat against the saddle and pushed hard. He would tumble to the side and fall away, and for every second of his descent he would relish those last few moments of freedom. But Angel's hand pressed him down. She whispered, No. And Lenora whistled to the hawk to begin its descent. We're not warriors, Knox shouted, directing his words at Lenora. To address the mage was too terrifying. We're slaves. No better than the fodder we eat, the slaves we capture and kill. Lenora, what will this gain you? Lenora did not answer, but Angel did. You're right, she said. The slaves we control with Kemikala. You croats with promises and fear. You're all slaves to us. Lenora laughed. Her shoulders shook. And Knox looked down. They were descending rapidly, and now he could see long columns of people marching up through the snow. There were thousands down there all of Newland making its way up into the mountains. A few croat pennants waved shadows under the snow. He wondered where his own troop would be, and whether any of them would care. Knox suddenly felt his fear transmuting into something else. Not hope, nothing so limitless, but peace. He realized that Angel was helping him on his way. However terrible his manner of death... Once gone, he would be beyond the mage's reach. "'I'll still escape,' he said, and Angel's hand left his shoulder. "'I'm sure you're right,' she said, and Knox felt her smiling. "'Even I can't see forever.' They landed on the glacier. It was a bright morning, no snow showers, and the cold air was sharp and clear. There were already a thousand croats and slaves there, huddled around hastily lit fires, cooking fish, drinking, already entering into something of a festival atmosphere. And why not? Knox thought. They're here to see a killing, and killing is what they love. Lenora slipped down the side of the hawk. The assembled throng grew silent, watching her. She looked up at Knox and motioned him down. Don't make me come up there and get you, she said quietly. Knox considered the weapons he carried. The sword was gone, but he still had throwing spikes, the slide shock on his belt, maces strung along both legs. He could surely reach them before Lenora made it back onto the hawk, but Angel still sat behind him. And even if the mage did nothing to prevent him, he guessed she may enjoy the sport of seeing Lenora and him enter into combat. 
Lenora herself was more than his match. At least it would be an honorable death. He fell sideways, right hand reaching to his belt for a throwing spike, left hand out to roll himself across the hard-packed snow. He saw Lenora tense, and then smile, and then he felt a hand close around his ankle. Angel stood on the hawk's back and held him high. He drew back his own hand, throwing spike ready. He heard the familiar whistle before the slide shock snapped off three of his fingers at the second knuckle. The crowd cheered and Lenora grinned. Knox screamed, instantly ashamed at his pain. "'Here he is,' Angel said. "'The escapee. He didn't get far. Norila is that way, Crote.' She swung him southward and jerked him back, blood from his fingers spattering a line across the glacier. "'We're all slaves!' Knox shouted, but the crowd cheered and jeered, and he wondered where he had ever found hope. "'My brother and I are slaves also,' Angel said, and the shouting suddenly ceased. She dropped Knox to the ice and jumped down, feet landing either side of his head. He could see her mottled skin, smell her age, sense the power she still possessed. "'Slaves to the magic that tore itself from us. Slaves to this place, our banishment.' Slaves to revenge. Kill him! Someone shouted. Other voices rose in support. Knox turned and scanned the assembled crowd of croats for a familiar face, but they were all strangers to him now. He had left them less than a day before, but already he no longer belonged. He had changed. Bless you, Angel said, as if talking to a thousand children. Death is all you know. She reached down and gathered Knox to her chest, lifting him as easily as she would a baby. Knox stared up at her face. Was she growing? Was he shrinking? He should be able to move, to struggle and fight. But each message he sent his limbs was translated into another pathetic whimper from his mouth. Just let it end, he thought. Please, just kill me. The mage glanced down, smiling as if hearing his thoughts. Lenora! Angel shouted. You know what to do! Knox did not see, but he heard. The hawk shifted on the ice, clumsy out of the air. Its great feet crashed down once, twice, three times, and then came a blast of heat, a gasp from the crowd and clouds of steam formed an unnatural mist around them. Already, mistress. Already, mistress. Already, Angel echoed, looking down at Knox. Betrayer, she whispered. She looked up again at the ever-growing crowd. This is a warning, she said, her voice carrying across the slope. Anyone who tries to flee my brother and I will suffer a similar fate, or something worse. We may not have magic, but we still have knowledge, ways and means, and chemicala. This is Knox. See him alive now, and see him live forever. Angel dropped Knox to the ice and straddled his chest. 
Her long hair fell either side of her face, and there, hidden from the crowd, he saw her true madness for the first time. Her eyes glowed with something more than reflected sunlight. Her mouth hung open, tongue lolling, and her lips were twisted in a grotesque sneer. Have this, she said, forcing a pellet of something into his mouth, and this. She thrust a knife through his clothes and into his chest just above the heart. He whined and tried to jerk himself upward, urging the blade to penetrate further. But Angel withdrew the knife and probed inside his clothing, pressing something cold and hard into the wound. She sat back and punched him in the face. His jaw slammed shut on the pellet and crushed it, releasing a foul-tasting fluid across his tongue. "'Put him in,' Angel said, standing and stepping away. Lenora approached, walking slowly. The crowd started to roar again, but their voices rose as if from miles away, starting low and deep and building relentlessly to a climax that never came. Looking up, Knox saw fresh snowflakes hanging in the air above him. Just hanging. What is this? he thought. I will see you again, Angel said, and her words sounded forever. They buried him in the glacier. Lenora had formed a cavern deep down, just large enough for Knox to lay out flat or stand up. The ice they piled in above him was melted with a blast of chemicala heat. The whole process seemed to take days. Lenora moved so slowly, and Knox never saw those snowflakes land. His mind, that kept its speed. Inside the glacier was not a silent place. It growled. It roared. Every few years it moved. And when the sun hit it just right, on the last day of winter each year, its ancient ice glowed like unending fields of green. Knox spent the first century trying to relive his dream. I listened to this story while taking a late-night walk around my neighborhood. It's been uncharacteristically cold here in San Diego these last few weeks, and I have to say, Tim's description of Dana Mon coupled with the cold weather left me with a serious chill. As impossible as Knox's attempt to escape seemed, by the end I was hoping he would somehow survive the inevitable. I suppose in the end we're all left to endure our fates. Knox just has a much longer time to endure. And speaking of fates... Please remember that Farfetch Fable survives on the generosity of its listeners. So if you like what you hear, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. Every little bit helps. Look for the Donate button on the website. You can make a one-time donation, or if you are feeling particularly generous, you can subscribe monthly for as little as two and a half pounds. Check your favorite conversion calculator to figure out what that is in your local currency. Please remember that Farfetch'd Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the contents and share it all you like, but don't change it or sell it, and be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyrights remain that of the authors. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our other stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website. Keep warm and be careful what you whisper, lest that unseen shadow or unassuming worm end up being your undoing. Take care. Bye now. 
This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 